Grace is a word that uh, entered uh, the everyday English language, hasn't it? Um, some people call their, their daughters Grace. What a beautiful name. Um, when we give thanks before a meal, we say we give grace, don't we? Uh, a dancer who moves, moves, is said to move with beauty and grace. It's a word that we use. Or uh, a, a grace note in front of a note in music adds decoration, adds interest to, 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 the, to the music. Similarly, a, a, a prisoner or a criminal who's pardoned is said to have been shown grace. And uh, sometimes a company will give you extra time to pay when you owe them money, and they'll call that a grace period. It's a word that's almost entered our, our common language, our everyday vocabulary, whether people are religious or not. And yet it's also a word that we use a lot about God. It's a word that we talk about the gospel of grace. We, the very last words of Paul to, to the Corinthian church, at 2 Corinthians, we often say, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. It's a word that we use a lot as Christians, and yet, um, it's a word that belies an ocean of meaning, a, a lifetime of learning. Um, today, we're going to just lift the lid off this word a little bit, off, off this word grace. This is what, uh, what you would call a, a topical sermon. Topical sermon means we're not preaching from a book particularly, just choosing a topic and talking about it, which gives the preacher license to go through all kinds of uh, scriptures and stories and goodness knows what. So, so we will jump around quite a bit today, uh, but that's okay. First of all, there'll be well-known stories, and secondly, I'll summarize them in case they're not well-known to you, or maybe we've forgotten them. What does it even mean, this word? Uh, hard to define. Um, it's, I think one thing it means, it's about a God who gets close down to his creation, a God who comes to us. We, so, we see this. Uh, first of all, uh, incognito, in disguise. God comes to us as a baby born to a poor family. Um, second, we see him as a 30-year-old man, God walking amongst us, uh, healing people, bringing sight to the blind, helping the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, raising the dead. Um, and yet he also <coughs> grieves at the death of his friends. And he also shows human emotions by going to parties with his friends, very much being one of us, laughing, sharing life with us. And thirdly, we see God coming to his creation today by his Holy Spirit. Grace is also about a God who works for the good of his people. Now, that can take time. We read earlier about uh, the lost sheep and the lost son, and they may have been lost for a long time. It doesn't necessarily follow that just because it's in the next paragraph, they're immediately found. Sometimes we are lost for a long time. But God works for our good. God works to bring us back to him. Is grace the same as mercy and forgiveness? I think it includes mercy and forgiveness. Some people say mercy is, is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. He lets us off. Uh, and grace is when he does give us what we don't deserve. Good things. Forgiveness is a little bit different. Forgiveness can happen in an instant. Grace can be received in an instant, but its, it's, uh, its effects go much deeper than that, much wider than that. And I really do believe, not just saying that this because uh, it's a nice line, but grace is pretty unique to the Christian faith. Uh, lots of other religions talk about 
God in the same words that we do, a God of power, a God of majesty, a God of might. Some religions talk about a God who came to this earth, incarnation. Some religions talk about a God of resurrection, a God who came back to life. But no other religions actually talk about grace in the way that we're going to talk about it today, and we'll, and we'll see why. In fact, there was a, a well-known story. Um, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, was at a, 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 cross, a, a religious conference, a faith gathering. And there was a discussion on um, the uniqueness of different religions. And when it came to Christianity, they were discussing what was really unique about Christianity because lots of other religions talk about the same things. And C.S. Lewis walked in apparently in the middle and said, what's the rumpus about? What's the rumpus about? When he was told, he said, well, that's easy, it's grace. But what is grace? What do we mean by grace? A very loose definition. Very loose definition. God's overwhelming kindness to people who can do nothing to earn it. God's overwhelming kindness to people who can do nothing to earn it. God can't love you anymore because he already loves you completely. And God is never disillusioned with anything you do because he never had any illusions about you. And yet he loves us. Loves us unconditionally, undeservedly. Uh, Two weeks ago, in the All Aid service, we talked about these lost stories of Luke, and we made a few points which I'll summarise. There's the woman who loses, who has ten coins and loses one, and she r- runs around the house cleaning and dusting, gets out a lamp at night until she finds it. There's the man who has night, who has a hundred sheep and loses one, and he leaves the flock to go after the one who's lost. And then there's the son, the prodigal son, the famous story of the one who wanders away from home eventually comes to his senses and comes back with a big apology and wondering if his dad will even take him back. But his dad is out there looking for him every day and waiting for him. And some of the points we made a couple of weeks ago, this isn't just about people becoming Christians. We tend to think, oh, he's talking about non-Christians becoming Christians. That's only part of it. It's anybody who has a falling experience away from God. And as Christians, we can feel separated from God. As Christians... If we're leading anything like a normal life, you and I, sometimes we fall away and things happen, situations happen at work, at home, in our families, and we feel distant. And these stories are about us as well. Uh, the lost story tells us, that, tells us that it's always God takes the initiative. God decides, I'm going after that sheep, I'm going to look for that coin, I'm going to wait every day until I see that sun coming back, that child coming back over the horizon. The um, stories tell us of God's care. Just one person, is a, one lost person, one person who's, who's fallen away from God is a burden on the heart of God. Um, we said, again, we said a couple of weeks ago, if you had nine of anything, would you really care if one went missing? And you think, well, I've got nine, right? That's, that's okay. If you had a hundred of anything and one went missing, would you really care? You know, God cares when one person is lost, when one person is far away. Second chance gospel. This is what we talked about earlier in the service. Uh, God's generosity. There's always a second chance, always a third chance, always a hundredth chance. And interestingly, this idea, which we'll come to again, is so important, it occurs throughout Scripture. Israel always had a second chance in the Old Testament. Look at the book of Jonah. That's a story of second chances. Nineveh had a second chance and Jonah had a second chance. The prodigal son in the New Testament, always a second chance. And do you notice how each story ends? Each story ends with a celebration. 
And in fact, Philip Yancey, who wrote a great book that some of you might have read, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, says this about the endings of these stories when God celebrates, when one person comes back. He says, this is how important it is to God that one person comes back. He says, God rejoices not because the problems of the world have been solved, that would be great, not because pain and suffering have come to an end, that would be wonderful, not even because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. That would be astonishing, wouldn't it? No, are you ready for this? Says Philip Yancey. God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. That's enough to delight the heart of God when we turn back to him. So, having kind of uh, circled around this word a little bit, grace, it's only five letters, isn't it? We can say it without thinking, grace, grace, grace. We can use it and spit it out. But let's deep, uh, dive down a little bit into some aspects of this word. Three aspects today. First, grace is outrageously personal, shockingly personal. Secondly, grace is fundamentally unfair. It's not fair. We'll see that. And thirdly, grace loses to win. So this idea of a personal God, this is a shocking idea, and this is one of the things that separates Christianity from other faiths. Other faiths think this is disrespectful, even blasphemous, that you could call God Daddy. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Therefore we cry out, Abba Father, we cry out Daddy to God. This, is, uh, this was shocking to New Testament Christians, and we should still be shocked. We should still be shocked that we can call God our daddy. It is a shocking idea. It is a blasphemous idea to some religions. See, at the heart of it, God isn't your big pal who you can go and punch on the arm and say, hey, he is the Lord of all creation. He was there before anything was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He put the planets at the beginning of time, put the galaxies, threw the galaxies into space, as we just heard in that song there, hands that threw stars into space at the beginning of time. Astonishing to cruel male surrender. He was there at the beginning of time. He flung the galaxies out, put the stars into the galaxies, put, spun the planets into their orbits. Today, the universe persists in balance and works because God makes it so. We're exactly... Exactly 93 million miles from the sun. Any further, it would be too cold for any life. Any nearer, it would be far too hot. The earth is tilted at at an angle of exactly 23 degrees so that we can have four seasons. In fact, if you went into it, uh, people call it um, the design argument, that the universe is designed and a design demands a designer. That there are a number of scientific constants which are uh, which are defined to an almost inc- incomprehensibly small degree. They are exact to an incomprehensibly small degree, and if they wavered by even a fraction of a percent, no life would be possible. There are many of these constants. One of them, just one, is what scientists call the gravitational constant, the constant that determines gravity. If that was a fraction of a percent, a fraction of one percent smaller, no matter could form. No matter could form anywhere in the universe. If it was a fraction of 1% bigger, all matter would collapse in on itself and life wouldn't be possible. It is finely tuned. God tunes that and God causes the universe to persist. And he will be there at the end of time when things are wrapped up. In fact, in the Bible, 
God uses all these names. Sorry, the Bible uses all these names for God. These, these are not uh, pet names, not family names, not lovey-dovey names. These are majestic and awesome names for the God of all creation, the creator of the universe. The Bible calls him Adonai, the ruler, El Shaddai, the almighty, all-sufficient one, Elohim, the mighty and strong, Yahweh, I am who I am. When Moses says, well, well what is your name? God says, I am who I am. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provider. Jehovah Nisai, the Lord our banner, our fortress. In the Bible, he's called the Almighty One, the Alpha and Omega, the Ancient of Days, and many other incredible names. In fact, Orthodox Jews would not even say the word God. They wouldn't say the word God, and they wouldn't write it. They would write G hyphen D, because they say, my lips are too unclean to mention the word God. My lips are not, are not good enough to say God's name. I'm not good enough. He's too awesome, too powerful, too mighty. And yet, this God, who threw the stars into orbit and the planets into, into their orbits around the sun, this God who created the universe from the, at the beginning of time, this God who is the Alpha and Omega, the Mighty One, the Ancient of Days, Jehovah Nisai, Jehovah Jared, this God says, you can call me Daddy. But don't forget who I am. You can call me Daddy. But don't forget who I am. It's a little bit like this. Um, until recently, this chap was the President of the United States. We won't talk about the current President. Let's just stay with somebody that we respect. <clears throat> Barack Obama was president of the United States for eight years, was it two terms? And uh, for that time, he was you arguably the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful man in the world by human in human terms. And if you wanted to see him, you had to be either very very rich or a world leader or a celebrity, somebody very famous. And even then, you would have to book this thing months ahead go through all kinds of red tape and bureaucracy, go through security, and then on a certain day at a certain time, you could meet the President of the United States, if you were lucky. You and I would never get a meeting. We would never get a meeting. We're not famous, we're not rich, we're not world leaders. Why would he see somebody like us? You have to, you have to go through all these procedures. And yet, that's one of his daughters. On the day this was taken... She didn't go through that. She's not a world leader. She's not rich and famous or a celebrity. She didn't book an appointment months ahead, and she didn't go through security. She probably didn't knock on the door. She went in and said, Daddy. This idea of uh, this shockingly personal nature of God that, that we get from grace, this is something that, that changed through the course of the Bible. Um, back in the Old Testament, to see God was to die. When God was uh, giving the law to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, if anybody else but Moses so much as touched the mountain, they would die. Elijah says, to look on the face of God is to die. And yet, on Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, something fundamentally changed in our universe. Something changed forever. That curtain that was torn in two on Good Friday, and God said, God, the curtain separated the most holy place in the temple from the rest of the temple, and nobody could go in the most holy place. 
Only one priest, the high priest, on one day in the year could enter the, the most holy place. And it's said that they would tie a rope around his ankle. So in case he died when he was in there, nobody wanted to go in there to get him out because they would die. So they would pull him out. And he had a little bell tied to him. So as he walked around, they, they knew that he was still okay. It was that holy. And that curtain, when it was torn in two, and God signified at that point, the way is now open. You can call me daddy. But don't forget who I am. So grace is about, not just about uh, God making himself approachable, but God getting on the same level as us. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrender. So that's the the shockingly personal nature of of grace. Let's look at this second idea, this idea of grace actually being unfair. Grace isn't fair. Uh, grace is fundamentally unfair, in fact. We talked earlier in this, in the, uh, this morning about Roy Regals, uh, the football player, who didn't, as far as the crowd were concerned, didn't deserve a second chance. He was, he was a fool. He'd messed up big time. But the gospel of grace is always to give a second chance, a third chance, a hundredth chance. And God says, no matter how many times you feel you've messed up, I, I'm going I'm to cheer you on. I'm going to applaud you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to say, get up and give it another go. Get up and give it another go. Constantly encouraging us. We just fumble the ball in life, but God keeps cheering us on. God's unfairness, because that isn't fair. I mean, the fair thing would say, like, you, you had a couple of goes, just, just leave it now. That would be the fair thing. God's unfairness is always weighted in our favour. But sometimes... God's unfairness is weighted in other people's favour as well. And we think, oh, well, they're getting more grace than us. Let's just look at that for a minute. Um, it's not fair, it's unreasonable is a phrase that comes up in the Bible several times. And this idea of grace being unfair, and we'd better get used to it, is such an important idea, it occurs several times through Scripture, several times through Old Testament and New. Here's a, a couple of examples Think of the the parable of the laborers. Jesus tells a story of a landowner who goes out in the morning at nine o'clock and finds some workers and says, go and work in my field and I'll give you a full day's pay, a silver coin, one denarius. And he goes out at 12 o'clock Find some more people and says, go and work in my field. You're not doing anything today. I'll give you a full day's pay of silver coin. And he says to people at five, four o'clock and five o'clock, the same thing. And so the people who went at five o'clock have only worked for one hour. When it comes to be paid, they all come back at the end of the day. And uh, those who've, who've worked for one hour are paid first. And they get a full day's pay of silver coin. And the people who've been there since nine o'clock, they've been working under the hot sun, the scorching wind for a whole day. They say, well, we'll get more than that. We'll get more than that. But when it comes to their turn, they also get one day's pay. They say, it's not fair. It isn't fair. Or think about uh, the elder brother, as we read about this morning. He says, this son of yours went away and wasted his money on wine, women, and song. I stayed here and worked for you. What what have you done for me? It's not fair. It's not fair. Or think about, in the Old Testament, the story of Jonah. This is a great one. 
Jonah, of course, is the man who God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and to tell them I'm going to destroy that city. Go to Nineveh and tell them I'm going to destroy it. And Jonah says, I'm not doing that. Why? that that's not a nice thing to do. Jonah goes the opposite way. But eventually, through some aquatic adventures, Jonah ends up in Nineveh. And he, te- he goes around Nineveh and says, three days and you're going to be destroyed. Three days you're going to be destroyed. Three days you're going to be destroyed. He's quite into it now. Yeah, this is quite, quite interesting. So then, he, then the, the Jonah chapter 4 says, he goes on top of a hill and then he waits. He's thinking, this is going to be really good. This is going to be like a firework display upside down. There's going to be hailstone, there's going to be sulfur, there's going to be acid, there's going to be lightning bolts, it's going to be amazing. And he sits down and waits. Meanwhile, the people of Nineveh repent and God says, I'm going to forgive them. And Jonah's response in Jonah chapter 4 is very interesting. He says, I knew you were a faithful God. I knew you were a forgiving God. I knew you were a compassionate and loving God. I knew you'd do that. Why did you bring me here? I knew you were going to do it. Why did you do that? Why did you bring me here? It's not fair. And God said, God said to the other workers in the field, I didn't cheat you. I didn't cheat you. I promised you a full day's pay, and I will give you that. And God said to the elder brother, Son, everything I have is yours. Don't forget that. But we had to celebrate, because this brother of yours was lost and is found. He was dead and he's alive. And God said to Jonah, Jonah, Nineveh is a city of 120,000 people. What is it to you if I decide to forgive them? Isn't that my decision? Think of yourself. What if grace was fair? Do you remember in the the message version of uh, the prodigal son, the younger son says, I want you to give me everything that's coming to me. What if we, as a church met for the, next, for the next month every night here at Lynn Baptist Church and we prayed hard. God, give us everything we deserve. Please, Lord, give us everything we deserve right now. Actually, that would be a dangerous prayer to pray. If we got everything we deserve, a lot of that wouldn't be very good. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. And sometimes other people... God values every one of us more than we could ever deserve is the heart of the Christian message. But grace isn't ours to measure out. The people who worked in the field, the elder brother and Jonah, all thought they knew how much grace other people should get. And sometimes we we think we know that, but we don't. And I tell you now, there'll be people in heaven who will astonish you. And we'll be saying, oh, didn't didn't know you were going to be here. And sadly, there may be people not there which will astonish us as well. Grace is not ours to deliver, to measure. That's, that's God's, and it is unfair. Thank God it's unfair. Thank God it's unfair. And then lastly, grace will lose to win. Grace will lose to win. Uh, some years ago, uh, one of my daughters, Laura, did A-level philosophy. And the very first lesson of A-level philosophy, the lecturer had given this question, and she came back with it. It's an interesting question. And the question was, if God is all-powerful, 
Could he make a rock that even he couldn't lift? If God is all-powerful, could he create a rock that even he could not lift? If he can't, then he's not very powerful. He can't create a rock that big. But if he can create it and he can't lift it, then he's not very powerful if he can't lift it. And it's meant to be a paradox, a conundrum, a catch-22. But actually, it's a misunderstanding of, of God and how God views strength and power. God's view of strength and power is very different to ours. Grace will lose to win. Grace, God became a baby. A baby can't lift a pebble. God will do that. He will lose in order to win, to win us back in that case. He will always do that. See, when Jesus became a baby, when God became a baby, he gave up everything. He gave up everything. He really put aside his majesty, his deity, not only, not only his strength to move rocks, but his knowledge of the future. He gave it up for us. Um, actually, a question for you, right? If Jesus, could Jesus have learnt fluent Spanish and just spoken it, not learned it. Could he just have spoken fluent Spanish if he wanted to? Could he have done that? What do you think? Most people would say yes, right? I would say the answer is no, because for this reason, only if the Father willed it. Only if the Father willed it. See, when Jesus heals a blind man uh, in John's Gospel, and they come and say, by what power did you do this? Jesus says to them, honestly, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. Only if the Father wills it. Jesus really gave it up when he became a man. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's desperate to find a way out of this situation. If there's any way out, Father, I I want that way out. But not my will, but yours. Grace will lose in order to win. Grace will give up power and majesty and dominion and might to win. Jesus really did surrender his majesty, gave up everything to become almost nothing. See, at, uh, on Good Friday, we see uh, the forces of this universe at work. Heaven and hell were both at work on Good Friday, but to different ends and using different weapons. The devil was using the powers of this world, might and power and strength. Who, who's going to be on top at the end? Who's going to win at the end? Who's going to be dead at the end of this day? was the way that the world, that the devil, fought that battle. God fought it a different way. God said, no, that's not my idea of strength. If, if that's your question about it, then that's not my idea about strength in the first place. God subverted, actually, all that battle, subverted it. God doesn't worry about people thinking of him as the loser. He holds the universe in his hands. And um, Paul tells us, several times that God will choose what, what we call weakness in order to win. What they say? God deliberately chose uh, to, God, God deliberately chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He deliberately chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And later on in the same uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent, says the Lord. 
what we think of wise and strength in our worldly sense, God says, no, that's, that's not how it is. My view of strength is different to yours. And therefore, yeah, I will lose in order to win you back. I will always do that. And maybe the other point for us, grace can only do its work in us when we admit our weaknesses. Grace can only do its work in your life and mine when we see our weaknesses and when we're upfront about them. Uh, even Paul, in, towards the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he had some kind of illness, some kind of disability. And he was praying that God would heal him of this thing. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I prayed to the Lord that he would heal me of this ailment. But God says to Paul, Paul, I'm going to leave you with this disability. I'm going to leave you with this. Because this is how you will depend on me. It's a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson. But then God says, because, I will leave you with this, because my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And, and then Paul says, therefore, I will boast of my weaknesses. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul changes his position completely. First he's praying for healing. God says to him, Paul, you need to understand my power will be made perfect because of your weakness, in your weaknesses. Through the things you cannot do, I will be able to work. And, it, and we see this in the world. The, the only people, I think, that God really cannot reach, cannot touch, cannot save, are people who believe they have no weaknesses. The people who believe they will, will make it entirely on their own. People whose hearts are full of pride. If our hearts are full of pride, then God can't do anything because there's no room for him in our hearts. Our hearts are already full. This is a, uh, these are, this is, this is a hard thing to understand. And sometimes uh, it's, it, it can be a stumbling block for people to become Christians. All of these things can. The idea that God is shockingly personal, other people from other religions find that difficult to take on. The idea um, that God, that um, grace will lose in order to win is a difficult idea because it, it takes our ideas of strength and power and turns them upside down. And the idea of grace being unfair, to be honest, that's what stopped me being a Christian for quite some time. When I was a student and uh, from a, a, an Indian secular Hindu background, came across Christians at university and loved to, to debate with them and to demonstrate how foolish their arguments were. I enjoyed it. It was great. It used to take me along to Christian talks, give you lots of food to eat, and you know, it was great. And then you could tell them why they were, how their arguments had holes in. But in the end, what convinced me was I said, there's something different about these people. They care about me enough to keep doing this. As much as I try to make fun of them, they still care for me. But then one day, it came to it, and I, was, I remember talking to my friend Alex, and I remember saying to him, Alex, you know, this gospel, I understand it now, but really, if I've done things wrong, I, I should be the one to pay that price. I, I, I want to do that. It's not fair. It isn't fair. Why should God do that? And Alex says, it's not fair, but you know what? God's already done it. So you can sit there and complain about it, or you can get on board and enjoy it. But these are stumbling blocks. This is grace. Grace is, is a stumbling block for people. So, uh, let's just wrap up. We've talked about 
uh, the, the shockingly personal nature of grace, the fundamentally unfair nature of grace, and that grace will lose to win. Just three snapshots of grace. There's so much more. But three, three snapshots of this tiny word. Let's end. I'm just going to end uh, with this uh, story, with these um, words of, a, of an old hymn. And a quote from um, Jeff Lucas. There's this old hymn which is often sung, uh, as, well, probably not so much now, as a children's hymn. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And Jeff Lucas says, for some of us, the old, old story of the gospel has become old. We have become bored believers. We've lost the gift of astonishment and grace isn't so amazing anymore. And that's so sad, isn't it? For so many of us, I included, sometimes, you know, we approach God in a sort of, yeah, let's get on with this, let's do the prayers, let's go to church. And we, and we lose the gift of astonishment, of amazing grace. It was John Newton, the slave trader, most of you will know, who came up with that phrase, amazing grace. He was a slave trader who led a, a profane life. And uh, on a ship, one day in a storm, he gave his life to Christ. Uh, and he later wrote to him, Amazing Grace. And he said much later in life, um, but I, I thank God for his grace that I am what I am. I am not where I want to be, but I thank God I am not what I was. It's a journey for us as Christians, one step at a time. And we're, we're not, we're never where we want to be and where we know God wants us to be. But we thank God that we've moved on from where we were. We're going to sing again. And as we, as we come to the end of our service, let's consider these things. Are we, are we amazed by grace? Are we bowled over by God? Are you bowled over by God's love for you? We will have a prayer time at the end of the service at the back. Maybe grace is a concept that's new to you today, or maybe it's just something you've lost sight of because of things happening in your life. Do come and pray with us if that's the case. Several of us will be there.